The harlot's influence is self-destructive. This is the second point we see in this passage. And when the angel begins describing the road that leads to, to the destruction of the harlot, it's important for us to realize that John, or the angel, gets a lot of information to first talk about the beast. And lo- then only at the end, in a few verses at the end of the chapter, he will talk about, about the harlot. Why? Because one of the surprising parts of this chapter that we must learn and we must realize is that the harlot's destruction will actually come through the means of the beast. This chapter will show that as powerful as the influence of the harlot has been because of the beast, the beast will turn out to be the means of her own destruction. So let's look at and see how the, the self-destruction of the harlot is played out because the beast will be the means by which the harlot will be destroyed. And because of that, the angel wants to take a little bit of time to tell us about the beast. And this beast is described in verses 8 through 14. And then at the end, in verses 15 through 18, we're going to see the destruction of the harlot by the beast. So the, the description of the beast. John gets further descriptions about this beast because it's going to play a significant role in the destruction of the harlot. In verse 8, the angel says, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. This phrase, was and is not and is about to rise, is repeated again in this chapter. It provides the contrast between the beast and God. Throughout the book of Revelation, God was described as the God who was and is and is to come. The first two parts of that formula for God, the God who was and who is, is is speaking about God's eternality. God always is. God always was, God always is, and God is to come. The beast may try to mimic God, but Revelation is very clear that the beast may, may share with God the past and may share and mimic God in the fact that he's coming, but it is not. The beast does not share with God it's God's eternality. There's at least two places in the book of Revelation where we see the beast in the is not category. Revelation 13, when Jesus, when, when, it, when, when Revelation 13, it is referenced that the beast received a mortal wound. It refers back to the cross of Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he gave the beast a first mortal wound. We see that in Revelation 13. Yet the Revelation also tells us that a time will come when the activity of the beast will be completed forever and ever. When the beast will go to destruction. There will be a time when the beast is not forever. And that we'll see in Revelation 20. As one Bible interpreter said, at that point in Revelation 20, the beast forever becomes one who is not. So while the beast is trying to mimic God in, the, in, in being the one who was and is 
and needs to come, Revelation says the beast is not, and we must hold on to that reality. The beast is no match for the God who is the eternal I am. Yet despite the beast's lack of eternality, the beast is trying to come back. Despite the first death blow that it received uh, at the cross when Jesus died on the cross, the beast is coming back. And in the book of Revelation, we see the description that the beast will be rising from the bottomless pit. And when the beast comes from the bottomless pit, everyone marvels, except one category. The people who will marvel at the beast coming back up are described in verse 8. Look at verse 8. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the earth will marvel to see the beast. In other words, God's people, those who truly belong to him, those whom God has set aside for himself from the foundation of the earth, they will not be amazed by the appearance of the beast. Friends, our election is proved and made visible by the response we have towards the beast and its kingdom. Being amazed by the beast is a characteristic of those who do not belong to God. The people of God are told twice in this text that this beast is going to destruction. Why be amazed by that which is going to destruction? Now, friends, use that principle as you think about temptations. If we remember that the things that tempt us in this life, eventually will be destroyed, eventually will perish, it may help us to feel less the power of those temptations. Why would we be amazed and drawn to that which eventually will be destroyed? One of the puzzling details about the beast and its description is its seven heads. It's interesting why the angel takes time to describe the seven heads of the beast. And this detail has given interpreters lots of puzzle, and there's lots of debate over it. Look at verse 9 and 10. This calls for wisdom, for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. Why this interpretation? Why, this, why the significance? What is clear about the, the heads of this beast is that they're all kings. This means that the beast is operating through the kings of the earth. Um, five of them have already reigned prior to John writing this book. This shows that the beast was already at work prior to John writing the book of Revelation. The time of John's writing is the time of the sixth king in the sequence of kings. And after that, we are told, comes the seventh king, and then the seventh king will reign only for a little time. Now, Bible interpreters have tried to figure out who are these seven kings historically. There's many theories. I personally am not persuaded by those who try to find the historical reference for each of the seven kings. I think there's, in, in the language of apocalypticism, the point here is that the seven kings, five have already taken place. John is at the time of the sixth. There's only one left. The point of the symbolism is we are very close for the final king to show up, for the beast to come with a final king, 
and for the Antichrist to, to, start, to try to, to have its final climactic attack upon the earth. And the end is about to come. The point of this vision of these seven kings and of the feature of five have already come, we're in the sixth, waiting for the seventh, is the time of the end is very near. We're very close to the end of the, of the, of the cycle of seven kings. Trying to, to figure out the historical reference is perhaps the way to fall, to, fall, to fall in all kinds of ditches today. But if we realize that since the first century on, we are living the end times, we are living very close to the end. At any moment, the, the seventh king could, could arise, the, 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 the coming of the beast from the, from the bottomless pit uh, in its climactic visit to the earth may come at any moment that we need to be prepared for it. Friends, that is a better attitude than trying to just figure out which historical king this is referring to. John wrote this revelation at the time of the sixth king. My persuasion, my, my understanding is we are still living at the same, in the time of the sixth king. And the seventh king can appear at any time. The time is close. It's been close for 2,000 years. And the way we are helped as Christians in this earth is to live with this attitude of readiness. The end of the end of the age could dawn at any moment. The beast will be assisted by its ten horns, we're told in verse 12. But even these ten horns and the beast together, despite their alliance, will be defeated by the lamb. Look at verse 12. We find out that that there's ten horns, and these ten horns represent ten kings who will make an alliance with the beast. And their power and their army together will come against the lamb. And when the beast rises from the bottomless pit, with, along with these ten kings, they will fight against the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them. In verse 13, we read that these ten kings make this alliance. And in verse 14, we read, they will make a war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called chosen and faithful. In other words, here's the beast and the ten kings with a beast forming an alliance against the Lamb. The Lamb fights them, conquers them, and the Lamb is not alone. He's followed by a crowd, and the crowd is called faithful and chosen, or chosen and faithful. The lamb in this picture is, is followed by a crowd that is uniquely described for the purposes of this chapter. They are a big contrast to the harlot. The people following the lamb are faithful, unlike the unfaithfulness of the harlot. Everything about, about the harlot is unfaithful and detestable. The people of God stand in contrast to the harlot. They're chosen and faithful. While the beast is described here as defeated, the lamb is described as victorious. But the story doesn't end here. What about the beast? Where, where, what about the harlot? Where is the harlot falling back in this picture? So far from verses 8 to 14, John receives this vision about the beast, that it's a ferocious beast. It will 
come back in a climactic way at the end of the age in a way to bring a lot of destruction. It will have an alliance with the kings of the earth. It will seek to defeat the lamb, but it will fail in that defeat. But that's not it. That's not enough. There's something else happening. Before the defeat by the lamb, the beast will do something that we may be surprised by. That is, the beast and its kings are going to turn against the harlot which has served the beast for all this time. Before the beast is destroyed, the beast with its ten horns turns against the harlot. And we see this in verse 16. The beast is not a good master. The beast is not a faithful master. So that serving him takes the people of the earth on a path of self-destruction. The beast will not provide security for the harlot. For the beast will not only be able to not secure himself, but he will not be willing to keep others with him secure either. And this is a pattern that God has already used in the Old Testament. When his people created alliances with foreign nations and relied on them for help, instead of relying on God, in God's eyes, those alliances were manifestations of playing the harlot. When you go home, would you just read Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23? There's so much in those two chapters about this pattern. God decreed that the nations with whom Israel played the harlot would turn against them and destroy them. I'll give just one example. In, Revel- in, in Je- uh, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 30, God says, And you, O desolate one, speaking about Jerusalem, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet? that you adorn yourself with ornament of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint. In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. In other words, even in the Old Testament, God showed an important principle that when the people of God begin to follow other gods, other idols, they will eventually be destroyed by the nations that they have sought after and played the harlot with. And all that is a pattern that we see here for the harlot in Revelation 17. She has, she has exerted her influence through the beast, and now it is the beast that will turn against her to devour her and to burn her up. Notice who is the ultimate in charge, even of this plan of the beast turning against the harlot. Look at verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. In other words, God's judgment upon the harlot comes by using the very master she has served. The alliance of the harlot and the beast will not last. Their alliance will turn out to be destructive for the harlot herself. Friends, have you considered the reality that whenever we take the path of unfaithfulness to God, that path of unfaithfulness leads us on a path of self-destruction? And God uses the idols that we create for ourselves in order to bring us ruin. When we give ourselves to something other than God, anything in this creation whether it's people or things or dreams or materialism, whatever it is, those items, those pursuits have the ability to eventually 
turn and act against us for our own destruction. Taking the path of unfaithfulness to God may seem like a great deal in the moment. It may seem like a, seem like a great bargain. It may seem like you're getting a huge discount. Until you read in the, in the small print of the, of the receipt that full destruction comes with that great discount. Would you ever buy something at a 99% discount price if it came with the ultimate tag of your own destruction? None of us would. None of us would. And yet when it comes to the lures of sin, when it comes to the temptations that we face each day to live a life that takes God lightly, and things that we can, we can go by and, and do this thing as well. Or whatever decision we have, we're, we're facing that does not please the Lord, that, that goes against God's ways, and we still do it. We think, well, it's not going to be a big deal. Plus, look at all the benefits I'm getting. Yes, you're getting an immediate big discount. But the small print of the receipt is full destruction in the end. If any of us are currently facing temptations of being unfaithful towards God, let this picture light up in our minds like a neon light. Unfaithfulness to God is like playing the harlot with God. And in doing so, we follow the path of the great harlot who one day will be destroyed by the very master that she has used to get all the people of the earth to follow in her ways. And if she can't protect herself, she will not be able to protect you and I if we follow her paths. Friends, examine what are your commitments? What are your commitments towards God? What are your commitments towards everything else in this life? Do you seek to cultivate and protect living faithfully towards God? Like the people who are following the Lamb to be called the chosen and the faithful? Or do you take your faithfulness towards God lightly? Does it matter to you much if, if you are living faithfully or not? Playing the harlot with God can involve anything in our lives where we shut God out and instead seek other resources for our values, for our decisions, for our actions. Playing the harlot is the path of arrogance of self-rule, of independence from God, of materialism, of man-centered beliefs, of immediate gratification and self-pleasure. God in His mercy has called out and exposed the harlotry of the city of Jerusalem in Jeremiah 4, as Pastor Taylor read earlier. God in His mercy has exposed the, the city of Jerusalem as being a heart of the, the people of, of Israel in, in that chapter, it was actually the northern kingdom of Israel. But God has exposed his people of their harlotry to invite them to come back to him. And God says, if you turn back to me, I will be merciful to you. Unlike the beast who is a merciless master, who eventually will, will kill and destroy the harlot, the God of heaven calls those who have taken the path of harlotry and says, come back to me. And I will be merciful to you. And Jesus says, anyone 
who will call upon me, I will not turn away. Oh, friends, Jesus is one to whom you can turn, turn away from your harlotries, your ways of unfaithfulness, and he will receive you if you repent and trust in him with all your heart. If you, if you want to do that, I want to I plead with you, do that today. He will, Jesus will never turn you away if you turn to him in repentance and faith. And part of God's design for those who, who are tempted to go in the way of harlotry, for those who are tempted to go in, to play the harlot in their way of life, you know what God's design is? To give them shepherds. In Jeremiah 4, the passage that was read earlier by Pastor Taylor, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 3, um, chapter, 15, chapter 3, verse 15. After God exposed the unfaithfulness of his people and, and brought in this picture of, of their spiritual prostitution, and God says, come to me, I will heal you. I will receive you. I will restore you. The very next promise God gives him, verse 15, is, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. What this means, dear friends, is that God not only receives us if we turn to him, but God provides for us so that we may be in a community where our waywardness, our way to, or our temptation to follow the harlot will be, will be warned, will be checked, will be under accountability, under care, so that we may not take the paths of harlotry. Friends, examine your commitment to a local church. Part of what it means to be committed to a local church is a commitment to ask others to watch over you and help you in your faithfulness to God. If you're a Christian but are not a member of a local church, I want to encourage you to consider committing to join a local congregation. Do so for the sake of protecting yourself from the temptation to follow in the path of harlotry the path of unfaithfulness to God. Consider perhaps why some people may even be resistant to the idea of committing to a local church. We live in an age that, is, that, li- that, that, that celebrates anti-commitment, an age that is fearful of anything that, that means commitment to anything, to God, to others, to a local congregation. It's interesting Playing the harlot has exactly that feature of no commitment. A harlot is characterized by no commitment. So is it possible that even in our, in our day-to-day when we celebrate the, the idol of independence and the idol of no commitment, is it possible that for some who are resisting to join a local congregation, that even that may be coming out of some spirit of no commitment which resembles strangely with the spirit of the harlot. God has given and promised to give shepherds in congregations so that these shepherds would watch over God's people, so that these shepherds may encourage God's people, so that these shepherds may may warn God's people, so that God's people may encourage and, and keep each other accountable against the ways of harlotry. Friends, have you considered that God desires his people to be committed under shepherds whom God provides for his people? 
I pray that, that our own tendency to somehow live with, with non-commitment in our lives, whatever that means, whatever shape that takes for you, I pray that God would expose that spirit of non-commitment and help you see perhaps it is one of the fruits of playing the harlot in your own life. Would you consider turning away from anything in your life that you sense and desire to be uncommitted? And especially when those uncommitments are against what God wants you to do. Are there ways in which you celebrate your, quote, freedom in Christ and you baptize it in ways that are actually excusing your desire to live uncommitted? Is it possible that we are changing language, even that Scripture uses, in a way to just excuse our sin and our ways of living unfaithfully towards God? Friends, the tale of this woman who is personifying the city of the beast, the tale of this harlot is given to us, and we are, we are told of her coming judgment to warn us that although she may seem seductive, luring, and powerful, and in control, her doom and her judgment is sure. As one Bible commentator said, the tale of her judgment reveals the foolishness of following her down the path that leads to material wealth, and the gratification of sinful desires. Her power and her pleasure are temporary. She is preparing people to receive God's judgment for their sin. And she is preparing the people of the earth to receive that judgment, dear friends, by giving them of the cup, the wine of her unfaithfulness. And it's a wine that will make us drunk. Be careful what you drink. And I'm not talking here about physical wine. I'm not talking about physical substances. Have you heard the phrase, you've drunk the Kool-Aid? It's talking about, and it's, it's used in many ways, some very unhelpful. But it, speak, it, it can be applied and used in a way that speaks about buying in to the ideology, buying in to the worldview, Buying into the value system, talking like an entire movement. And here, Revelation 17 warns us, don't drink the wine of the harlot. Don't drink it. It leads to destruction. The people of God have been created afresh anew, have been made a new creation by the word of God so that we may show an alternative reality to the wisdom, to the corruption, to the allurance that the beast and or her harlot tries to present for us. It is a wisdom. It is a power. It is an influence and a luxury that only leads to corruption. May we not drink of that. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we pray that you would awaken our hearts and minds to realize the dangers that are around us as we are living in a world dominated by this harlot that serves the purposes of the beast. Father, help us to see, help us to observe, help us to be aware of her snares, help us to be aware of the dangers of taking the path of her harlotry. Father, we pray that you would 
awaken us away from the path of destruction. Father, we pray that you would help us to see the beauty and the faithfulness and the radiance of your people as we desire to follow you faithful to the very end, even if it costs us our lives. We pray that in the name of Christ. Amen.